Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought you'd be further along financially by now? If so, you're not alone. Many people find themselves wanting to ditch their nine to five, wishing they had more time with their family. What most people want is to simply live the life that they choose and with plenty of money to do so. The good news is you can live an abundant life through apartment investing. Mark and Tamil Kenny with Think Multifamily help you take back the time and freedom so that you can live free from the stresses that burden so many. Through multifamily investing, they teach you how to set your family up for a lifetime of true success and fulfillment. They have helped hundreds of people just like you. Patrick, for example, who since working with Think Multifamily has purchased over 900 units with another 850 under contract. And at 27 years old, was able to quit his demanding job in corporate America. Regardless of your age or profession, Think Multifamily can help you create the life of your dreams. As hosts of the new Think Multifamily podcast, Mark and Tamil will walk you through the journey step-by-step to make sure you are completely set up for success. Through this interview-style podcast, you will gain a proven strategic apartment investing system and hear stories from successful investors, all to help you be light years ahead of those who try to do it alone. Subscribe to the Think Multifamily podcast today at thinkmultifamily.com forward slash podcast. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, AAA Adams, and today I'm here with a friend of mine, Mr. Hunter Thompson. Hey, Hunter, how are you today, sir? Hey, Adam. Thanks again for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on, and we're going to be talking about a little bit about your journey. I'm really excited to dive into it. What we're really going to learn and be able to take away from this podcast is what are the better assets to kind of get involved in and, and why? Uh, should we be in single family, multifamily, self-storage or whatever? And what are the risks associated with it? So as you kind of learn a little bit about Hunter's uh, story about his experience as he started in 2011, uh, what he's gained from it and uh, and why he's going in the direction that he's going. If you want to find out more about what he's doing, he has the Cashflow Connections podcast. So just go and look up Cashflow Connections podcast. They also have um, some educational materials that if you want to kind of see some of those, you just go to cashflowconnections.com. Uh, his company, though, is ASIM Capital. That's A-S-Y-M Capital.com. So you can find out more about his company, see his bio, get a hold of him by going there to asimcapital.com. And by the way, if you're here, if you're here on the live, sometimes we record these podcasts live on Facebook. Today, we are live on Facebook. And so if you're on the live and you have a question for Hunter, you want to know more about self-storage or how you underwrite a deal or whatever your question might be, go ahead and type it in the comments. I'll be monitoring those. I'd be happy to ask Hunter for you on, on that. Hunter, my first question is you got involved in this like a while back in 2011. Tell us your story of just how you got involved in real estate. Yeah. So, I mean, I studied economics in college and was very drawn to big macro changes. And so when 2008 happened, I saw it as a great opportunity, right? No, I, I just knew from a cyclical standpoint, it was going to be interesting in financial markets. So I was exposed to, like most people, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds as being pretty much the only way to invest. And that's where I started studying, you know, reading books that Warren Buffett had put out and trying to invest similar to those guys. And obviously, you know, had some success given where we were in terms of market dynamics at that time. What really happened with me, though, is as I was starting to study and as I was learning more about the stock market and seeing some gains, 2010 happened. Now, this is something that not a lot of people talk about. For, for me, it was like a massive moment, which is the European debt crisis. Basically, something that happened in the United States very similarly happened in Europe. So lack of liquidity in the markets, a lot of central banks had problems with liquidity, and it caused unbelievable volatility in the US markets. I'm talking like all of a sudden, after all the stuff that I was studying, now all the CNBC anchors were talking about the Greece bond yields as if that was like the predicting factor in my entire portfolio. And I was basically like, how is this the case, right? I, I could never have mitigated this risk. I could never have been able to predict that this would play a role. 
And so I started to look for vehicles that could produce predictable outcomes that also could provide cash flow. Very quickly, I was drawn to real estate and that's really where my career was formed. And so my investing strategy was forged out of, you know, the most significant correction in the United States history. And part of that also is the fact that when I moved to California shortly after 2008, the people that were in the real estate sector were the people that were able to weather that storm. And so I was very fortunate, not only in terms of timing, but also in terms of the network that I built around me, sophisticated individuals that were able to go through that, you know, once in a lifetime type of correction. Got it. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. Well, after all of that experience, after kind of seeing all of um, that happened in 2008, 9, 10, 11, what, what asset classes are you now focused on? So I kind of look at it like this and I'll start with the big picture thesis and then we'll work our way into details. So from a big picture, all types of real estate do incredibly well when the economy is booming and the capital markets are loose, right? So you can raise rents aggressively. You can fill vacant lots. You can do this and that and the other thing. And generally speaking, you're going to be fine. But only some types of real estate do well when the economy is contracting or struggling. And so if you can balance out your portfolio by investing in those recession-resistant assets, to be specific, asset classes in which the demand is inversely correlated with the economy, you start to really balance out the portfolio and you get the best of both worlds because you're still going to get that upside that comes when there's a lot of access to lending, you have cap rate compression across multiple asset classes. I think the most pronounced version of this is the mobile home park business, which back in 2011 was not a very common thesis for people to talk about. Like investing communities were just starting to get wind of what this vehicle really could imply. Now it's in trend. Part of the reason for that is that people are chasing yield, but generally speaking, the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for affordable housing. And that is true always. And then let's say the economy starts doing incredibly well you are able to raise rents a little bit more aggressively, et cetera. So the mobile home park business, I find very compelling. Now there's some nuances of that business that I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with that it's just hard to argue with. Uh, the self-storage business, I'm a huge proponent of. Similarly, people need the product when they're going through some kind of life change. And a lot of those changes can be brought on our recessions. So think about people downsizing, people moving home from college unexpectedly, people having to change jobs. These are things that take place more frequently during recessions, and they're also the things that drive demand for the product. And then also workforce housing. You know, Basically, if you think about it like this, let's say everyone that's making $100,000 a year, if there's a recession, all those people are now making $60,000 a year. And the people that are making 60 are making 40, and the people that are making 40 are making 30. It, regardless of who moves where, there's always demand for C-class and B-class apartments because it's going to capture a pretty significant piece of that median income, no matter where that median income shifts. So obviously that's a big picture thesis and you need to look into the data to ensure that that thesis is really confirmed by the historical data, but we've done that and it's very compelling to us. So there's really three asset, four-ish asset classes that you're really looking at. You're looking for really affordable housing, um, which would be, um, three things, maybe B and C uh, multifamily assets, as well as mobile home parks. And then you're also looking at self-storage. Um, so those are really the asset classes that you're focused on. And one of the things that you said, I'm trying to make sure that I have, have it in my head, because there was something that you said that I really wanted to pull out, that, which I thought was very, very interesting. And what I think it was, is when you said that there are some asset classes that actually perform better when the economy is back. I think the word you said was inversely, um, you know, from what is really happening. And so if you could just share what is that asset class or those asset classes and, and why are they doing better in a bad economy? Yeah, exactly. So it's basically that inverse correlation, right? So the worse the economy does, the more likely there are going to be demand for the product. Now, in all fairness, that doesn't paint the whole picture. Just because the demand is there doesn't mean that you're going to have a successful real estate investment. And I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but there's so many more moving parts. Like I said, that's a big picture thesis. So I think that the mobile home park business, the self-storage business, workforce housing, those are very compelling recession-resistant assets. But that isn't all I need to know. I don't just send the rounding instructions and now we have a, a new investment in our hand. You know, Our company and myself 
spend a tremendous amount of time vetting the operating partners of these deals, vetting the market dynamics. You know, real estate is an incredibly localized business, particularly self-storage. You know, talking about the risk, for example, there's in the multifamily sector, you frequently hear the term replacement cost as being a, a potential selling point for an investment property. So if you can buy a property at 60% of replacement cost, you think it's very likely that's very challenging to have competitors come into your market. It's very compelling. With the self-storage business, I'm not trying to pull away the veil, but you very infrequently hear that metric. And the reason for that is it's very inexpensive to build them. So you have to be very cautious about the supply-demand equilibrium within each market. And one of the ways to do this is you take the median population or you take the population of a circumference and you basically divide it by the national average. And that will give you a good rule of thumb in terms of the supply and demand of that particular market. The national average is about 7.7 square foot per person. So you have a market that is on average a quarter million square feet below that. It's very likely that that market would be undersupplied. And therefore, even if there was some competitors within that five mile radius, you're going to have that experience. So again, just circling back to the recession resistant component, yes, it is true that generally speaking and historically, the product does well during recessions, but you also have to account for things like the supply demand equilibrium, the on-site manager and the strategies that are going on there. And that's what you know, a lot of our time is spent doing. Okay. That's all very, very interesting. So, so if I, if I can try to sum up some of this, these are, these are things that I, I, my company, we don't do self-storage. So uh, it, when you said 7.7, I think you're saying you need 7.7 square feet of self-storage per person in a city. Is that kind of what you were saying is the equilibrium? Exactly. And that's, of course, that's a very broad rule of thumb. So different markets have different dynamics. But generally speaking, if you have, let's say, a radius of of five miles, you have a a square 7.7 square foot is the average within that radius per person. So if you find a radius where it's only four square foot per person, it's likely that that radius is undersupplied, undersupplied. So that's not the only data point we look at, but it's at least a good telling point to give you some kind of predictability in terms of whether or not there's way too much or way too little self-storage within a market. Okay. Well, let me ask you, I don't know what you've really looked at for, for instance, Denver. I've noticed um, in the past couple of years, I probably see in the last three years, I don't want to exaggerate on, on the podcast in any way, you know, but I'd say it feels like I've seen several thousand units come up and be built within the last three years. Now, this isn't something that I've looked up. I've, I've not studied the statistic, but I drive by pieces of dirt and <laughs> then the next day I see several hundred uh, units going up and then I drive by a different piece of dirt and that becomes several hundred units. So it just feels like a, a, there's been like several thousand in, you know, a 15 uh, mile radius. Now, do you have data to support or go against what I just said here in Denver? Yeah, no, that's actually a great point. And honestly, if you would ask me to give you an example of how significant this development can be, I'm almost certain I would have used Denver as an example of this. Now, I'll say it like this. Denver, as you know, is experiencing an incredible increase in jobs and in growth and in population and in income growth. So the reasons for that development is not just simply because developers have lost their minds. It's because there is a significant amount of demand there. And with that demand is coming increased income and you know, increased toys, which need to be stored. Now, having said all that, within the Denver market, you know, looking at Denver, especially in self-storage, it's hyper-localized, right? So people usually won't drive more than five miles to get a self-storage facility. So you can find pockets within Denver, which can be under supply. And then you've got kind of the best of both worlds. You've got all this overwhelming uh, demand and income, and then you've got an undersupplied market. In fact, we do have a property in Denver in which it's actually illegal to build new self-storage properties within this radius. So even with the additional growth, you know, it's very, very challenging. We don't foresee it taking place within the whole period of the asset. But to your point, developers love this product type 
because it's very structurally simplistic. So they can get in, get out, and get it and done very quickly. On the other side of that, though, it makes it compelling because we love to buy value-add cell storage, not necessarily development. I don't think it's necessary to take on that type of risk um, for our particular investor base, at least. So if we can find a product, let's say it's 60% occupied in a market that's typically 89% occupied, and it's just halfway, you know, the development's complete, the developers got it up to 50% occupied, we can buy that in place income and just raise occupancies, raise rents effectively. And that's basically my favorite risk profile. Um, so, you know, developers love it, but it creates a permanent opportunity because it always happens, right? It gets overdeveloped, it gets overheated. Then what happens in Denver happens, all the self-storage takes place. But in 12 months, developers are like, man, we're not getting the type of response that we wanted to. And a firm like ours can come in or one of the operating partners we work with and can buy the asset and implement that value add strategy. I have feel like a million questions for you. There's so many <laughs> things that, and that there's no way we could get them all out. But um, first thing that I, I want to address is, is that you mentioned that people like the, that the infrastructure is easier. Like you, you don't need, you know, so much water, you don't need um, so many different lights and, and that you would in an actual, uh, like a uh, apartment building. Um, it's just more simple, right? There's not a toilet in every unit. There's, uh, there's not all of these issues. The tenants, I think the laws kind of favor getting rid of, it depends on the city, I'm sure. But in Denver, I feel as though the laws favor the owner of a self-storage. If you're not paying, it's like, cool, we'll just put a lock on it. And, right. and we just push this out. Where, as in with um, apartments or or houses, sometimes the laws can be super prohibitive to the owner. Um, if somebody wants to get out, if somebody stops paying in like Los Angeles or New York or some right. other cities, uh, like sometimes you, you, you either can't kick them out during the winter or, or for <laughs> instance, it's just like you can't kick them out for a certain period. You have to make sure that a, a sheriff drops it off. So there's all these like laws. Um, are there any laws or examples that you could share that I missed or that would help to drive that point home of why it might be beneficial to work with self-storage instead of an apartment building like I'm doing? Yeah. So there's two things I want to touch on that you mentioned there. One is directly related to the question. The other is kind of a segue because it is so commonly thought of in the self-storage business. So to your point about the laws, people are not supposed to be living in them. And so because of that, states view the situation in which, you know, a quote eviction very differently than what you would for a multifamily business. And you mentioned California. You know, we very infrequently invest in California residential real estate because there's significant challenges. I mean, we really like the mobile home park business as well. It's very, very challenging, especially in that demographic to complete. We're very skeptical of the next 10 years, you know, especially when you think of things like uh, rental increase limits and stuff like that. But with the self-storage business, you're not subject to that because this is not someone's home. And so people say, look, if you want to get your jet skis, you need to just come pay the $100 fee, basically. And states vary significantly, but it's not, basically it's very one-sided towards the owner of the property. The other thing that I want to touch on is a lot of the industry, because of the simplicity of the investment, because of the structural simplicity, and because you're not really providing that many amenities, a lot of people think of these as investments as opposed to businesses. And so you can make this business extremely complicated, as complicated as running a business. In fact, it is, to, to certain degrees, it is actually more complicated than multifamily. Like you can have relationships with nearby businesses, universities, you have, you know, just typical things like internet sales, merchandise, selling merchandise can be a really benefit benefit. Um, you also have insurance that you can require. And I'll tell you one that I really love is um, truck rental commissions. So you can buy a property that doesn't have a relationship with any truck rental company, buying that property based on in-place income, and then the day after the property is purchased, calling their contact at a truck rental company, let's say U-Haul, they park 15 trucks on our facility. We rent those trucks out to the tenants without really owning the trucks or not maintaining the trucks. It's just facilitating the transaction. 
And you know, I've personally invested in properties where that one line item has gone from $0 a month to $3,500 a month directly to the bottom line. So it's really, really favorable. I mean, that's somewhere between half a million and a million dollars of value created by just implementing that strategy. So just bringing it back to that point, it is a simple structure, but what takes place in the structure can vary very significantly between a mom and pop owner and a best in class owner. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, you and I both love commercial real estate so much is that the more complicated it becomes, the more significant of a difference there can be. And therefore, when you do identify those mismanaged assets, there's like all these strategies you can implement, which can result in those asymmetric outcomes for your investors. Very cool stuff. And uh, you touched on so many things that I hadn't even thought of. Uh, I re- didn't realize that there were so many ancillary or auxiliary um, income streams that could be associated with self-storage. The way I thought of self-storage was it's a box, you put stuff in it, you're done, right? That's just how I thought of it. And you're showing uh, things like having insurance that you can add to it. Um, you're talking about things like hey, we can sell you a lock for the property. Uh, exactly. And so you buy the lock for like three bucks and you sell it for 20. And yep. you're saying stuff like you, you could um, buy a truck and have the truck there and in charge for it. Or you could even have U-Haul bring it in. It's not even something that you own, but it is something that you find a way to make money on. So this is very interesting. I know there's more ideas out there. And that was going to be my next question was just going to ask, like, what do you mean by value add self-storage? But I feel like I really understand some of the ins and outs of what you mean by value add self-storage. So there was another question that I had in mind that um, just kind of took me back and I I was confused at, at why would there be if, if an area was 89% occupied, as you mentioned before, why would there be a self-storage that was 60% occupied? Like to me, that makes absolutely no sense. It's a box. It's ready for you. Everything else is full. Why isn't this one full? Like how can you mismanage an asset like self-storage so much that you're 30% below um, the mean, the average? Yeah, that's a good question. I should have clarified. So in that example, it's a developer has gone ground up and then they wanted to fill the property up in 24 months and it's 24 months in and they're not quite getting the response that they wanted, right? So they've gone from 0% all the way up to 60 and now they're looking for a way to exit before the loan comes due. That could create a really great opportunity for a company like ours where we don't want to take the risk of development and we certainly, you know, through the help of our operating partners can reach out to nearby universities or military bases. Military bases create great tenants because they usually have long stays, right? So deployments are typically longer than the national average in terms of uh, with a tenant duration there. So things like that can really help. So I wasn't trying to imply that there was a property that, you know, in a normal market that had been there forever. Usually those take place when you have a recent expansion or development, which by the way, I like that too. I mean, the name of my company is ASIM, right? Short for asymmetric. So I think that from my perspective, if you have a property, another example, you have a property that's 90% occupied and it's only standard non-controlled, non-climate controlled units. Let's say you expand the facility by 30% only climate controlled units because the market demands climate controlled units for whatever reason. Now your occupancy has dropped significantly. Okay, but all that capital expenditure, all that risk that goes along with development has basically been completed. So now you have the best of both worlds. Again, you have a property itself, which was previously 90% occupied in a market that's 90% occupied that now is 60% occupied because that recent expansion. You know, if there's an opportunity like that, we would do that all day because that value add is there, but the development risk has been completed already. Perfect. My next question is going to be about overpaying. So I'll get there here in a moment. I want to just pause for anyone who is currently on the Facebook. We've seen a lot of comments come in. Uh, There are no questions yet. So if you are curious, if you are curious about mobile home parks, if you are curious about self-storage and how it works, feel free to put your comments there. And we we can mention that and make sure that Hunter answers those questions now totally live. So if you are curious, if you're listening, it looks like there's a ton of people listening right now. And if you're, you want to know a little bit more about what Hunter's doing or how these asset classes work, just throw it in the Facebook uh, uh, comments. 
Okay, so I was going to ask you about overpaying. This is this is something that this morning I was on the phone with a really good friend of mine. I I won't mention any names, and it doesn't really matter because the 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 question that I have is about cap rates, capitalization rates. As a lot of the listeners know, as Hunter and I both know, commercial assets are based on their what they're pulling in for income, and I know that there's two ways of thinking, so I don't want anyone out there to think that you can't buy a two cap. They would say to themselves, holy cow, you should never buy a two cap. Well, there are ways to make a lot of money on a two cap. Here's two ways that I can think of. You're in New York City. Maybe everything's already trading at a two cap. You raise a little bit of, you raise it by a million dollars of income that year. And now all of a sudden you have 50 times that. I think that's yeah. the calculation, 50 times the a million. So you've, you've made a $50 million profit. So that's one reason to buy a two cap. And the other one that I had a conversation with a friend of mine earlier today, purchasing a property in an area that is normally a five or a six cap, but they are uh, looking to purchase at like a three or four cap. Mm -hmm. And um, my normal thought process is you're not supposed to overpay. You're not supposed to pay the seller to, for the work that you're going to do. Like, right. Hey, I'm going to do all this work, but I'll just pay you for it. It sounds right. ludicrous. It sounds crazy, but I feel like, there's a chance that you might be doing that when buying a 60% occupied building from a seller who needs to get out of their loan. I feel like there's a chance that that cap rate is actually lower than you would traditionally buy it because you see what's on the back end. So if you could just kind of speak to that a little bit of how it might work, what uh, the cap rates are in the areas that you might be purchasing this 60% occupied in an 89% occupied area. Sure. And are you, quote, overpaying because you know the values there? Yeah. And by, you know, it's interesting. Like, I get the opportunity to come on and talk about different investment vehicles that I'm super passionate about. And I feel like it gives the impression that I'm just this super always positive, down for anything guy. It's just, nothing could be further from the truth. And this is a great topic because we're seeing a lot of this right now. And I think there's two lessons here regarding the overpaying. So number one, um, you know, in that situation, pretty pronounced value add proposition where it's a 60% occupied thing, no seller is going to give that away at a market cap rate, right? Because they, they know, number one, that there's millions of dollars to be added. Number two, they're probably getting offers which are competitive, which are not going to be, we're not going to be competitive in a market like that. Now, having said that, it does speak to the fact that in, if the listeners are in the process of selling properties, it's best to consider not maxing out the property just prior to selling, because then you're in a position to sell the dream, which is kind of what you're getting at there. So I really suggest really focusing on reducing expenses right now, as opposed to raising, raising, raising rents, getting the property up to 99% occupied. Then you go to a seller, you try to liquidate and they say, where's the value add here? What's my excuse to go to investors and say, this is why we're buying a five cap in a six cap market. Now, getting back to your question, the markets that we're looking in, I would say are trading somewhere between five and six caps. Okay. So these are fairly prime markets, typical 35,000 daily traveled vehicles a day kind of markets. You know, Florida, Southeastern markets are really favorable to this asset class in particular. Florida is unique because it's surrounded by water. You also have a really good combination of baby boomers, which are downsizing, which demand for self-storage is there. You also have high income markets that are water facing. So people need toys. Um, but yeah, so five to five to six, somewhere in that range. And yes, if we are buying a heavy value out, we can go well below that for a lot of reasons. One of which is that because you're on monthly leases, you can implement these value add strategies very quickly. You can raise rents very quickly. Additionally, the dollars are relatively small compared to some other asset classes out there. So if you implement a 6% rental increase in multifamily and maybe 50 or a hundred or $300 with self-storage, we're talking about like $6 a month. So the question becomes, who is going to take the day off work, hire movers, get a rental truck, move down the street where they're probably going to do the same thing for $6 a month? I'm basically making the case that you can implement these strategies more quickly than you can in other asset classes, including things like the implementation of the truck rental companies, for example. Um, so yeah, it's a very fair 
point. Um, but the justification is that those strategies can be implemented easily without the capital expenditure component, which also can be part of the investment thesis. Awesome. Emma has a question for you. And Andrew has a question for you live on Facebook. And if anybody Great. else has a question live on Facebook, we will make sure to get those um, answered for you. Right before I, I throw Emma's and then Andrew's, um, I, I wanted to make just drive two of the points home that you mentioned. Uh, one of them was basically just talking about what you're going to tell your investors. And, and so I, I, if, you, if by chance you're overpaying as, the, as we're kind of talking about, it's really just talks about what is the story? What's going to happen? What's, why are you paying it? And what's the end result? I think that's very important. So I just want to say, what's the story? That's really what you want to get at when you're looking at these things. The next thing that um, you were mentioning, and I want to drive that point home a little bit as well. When I'm looking at multifamily, a 10% rental increase is a lot. When I'm looking at a self-storage, which I used to buy, I used to have self-storage for 30 bucks a month. It was a 10 by 10. Now I pay uh, 200 bucks a month for a 10 by 10. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I, what, what we're talking about is if you increase rents by 10% in a apartment building, there's a chance that people are like, ah, going from, you know, 1200 to 1400 bucks. Yeah. I'm out. I am out, out, out. But when you're having a self-storage unit and, it, and it's going from, you know, $100 to $115, they're like, eh, no big deal. It's just 15 bucks. So yeah. I, it, it seems like as you're increasing those rents and being able to capitalize on that at a five cap, like you're talking about, this is huge. It's 20 times the, the annual rents, right? Not the month. It's, you collect all of what that 15 bucks does multiply it by the year, and then multiply that by 20, which is your, your cap rate. So it seems like the value add abilities on a self-storage can be a little higher. Would, would, before we go into these other questions, do you disagree? No, yeah, I think that's a completely accurate assumption. And you know, again, it doesn't paint the entire picture, but it's definitely clear in terms of the gross dollars right? The gross dollars are insignificant, which also makes the case for it being recession resistant more compelling. Because if you're talking about pinching pennies, you're not going to be focusing on the $6 a month or the $15 a month, to your point. You're going to be talking about where can I save $1,000 a month if things get really nasty. Love it. Love it. All right. So Emma uh, is talking about management companies. She says, most of us don't want to run an active business. Uh, what are the typical service percentages, the fees that you'd be paying to a, um, a management company on your self-storage unit managers. Yeah. And this is, I'll, I'll be transparent about this. So this is kind of, we get into the, the passive versus active approach. And for those of you that, that aren't familiar with my approach to investing, I'm a huge proponent of the passive side of things. Um, the reason for this is very clearly outlined in this particular topic, especially because of the complexity of the business. So just to make it as quickly as possible, if you own 20 single family houses, the economies of scale of owning 20 as opposed to one, they can help you out, but it's not going to be life-changing. If you own 20 self-storage facilities, you're going to be a major player in the United States. And the systems and the processes and the infrastructure that you have owning those 20 facilities will give you a huge advantage over someone that just owns one. So what we do is we help people invest passively in these deals. So to your point, yes, there is a property manager, but there's actually one layer removed. So there's actually a managing per partner who manages the manager. And usually these people, these companies, they will take somewhere between 40 and 30% of the entire proceeds of the deal, somewhere in that range. And so let's say a property manager may take 6% or 5% of the gross income. And then the sponsor, which is the operating partner, will own basically 30 to 40% of the proceeds of the deal. And I don't want to go too far into the details of that. I know some of your listeners will already be familiar, but um, especially when you have these complexities, the operating partner can make up for their interest in the deal because of how much value add they're bringing. So again, the more complicated it gets, the more room there is to incorporate a general partner who can make up for their value there. Okay. Um, so can you... Uh, throw a number on what you're you, what you're paying for that asset, the property manager. Usually, is it like from a gross dollars perspective? Five, well, yeah, five yeah, percent of rents, ten percent of rents, 
three percent of rents. What what kind of does that look at like? That will be the fee somewhere in that range. And then I'd say on a personal basis, the property manager stands to make as an income basis somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars a year. So the company may receive that, and then the net property manager will make somewhere in that range. So you're dealing with a sophisticated individual who's capable of doing things like selling ancillary income items, merchandise, truck rentals, etc. Okay, great. Um, we Emma had a follow up question. Um, says. What services are typically provided by that fee? So if they're making that three, five, or 10% or AKA $50,000 a year, sure. Um, what do they do? Yeah. So, I mean, no, number one, we have our property managers, they usually live on the property. So you have this like 24 hour surveillance and, and security component. This is things like greeting people. This is mostly like the big thing that there's been debates about recently is the upsells, right? So what this means is, okay, you came in here for a 10 by 10 unit standard, which will be a hundred dollars a month. But if you have things like art, for example, or items that you don't want to be exposed to the weather, why not pay an additional $30 a month to get a climate controlled unit? Or if you want a larger unit, you can have like something that you can work out of, for example, during the day, anything like that. So those upsells, those conversations are really where the property manager's value is displayed as opposed to something like a kiosk, let's say. And then of course, going into the merchandise sales, ancillary income, tenant insurance, things like that as well. Perfect. That absolutely brings us into the next question that Andrew had. And uh, what I did is I already copied and pasted it. So it's, it's in the Zoom chat. So if you want to look at it, you can, because his one question almost has uh, three or four questions involved. So you'll have it in front of you. But sure. let me go ahead and read um, Andrew's question. He says, when would you choose to pave, fence off, and maybe uh, put a, a, a gate code on the self-storage unit? Yeah. So first of all, these are great questions and I want to commend you for, for doing this show and, and getting this, like the reputation that you have, because these, these questions are really good and it's always good to know that people are kind of curating that audience. Um, so one of the ways that the operators that we work with, it's really compelling to me to build a class self-storage. Now for some people that are initiated to self-storage business, they would think, well, what does that even mean? Like you don't have pool, obviously you don't have like you know, office parties and such. This is one of the differences, right? So the security component, the amount of amenities that are added, the amount of merchandise sales that could be provided and the security of the gate. So for us, it's always, right? So we'll buy a property that doesn't have this component and add this component. The majority of the tenants are typically women. So the security component becomes very important for a variety of reasons, not only in terms of the stuff that they're bringing, but in terms of their experience on the property. So this is something that we do with all the properties. Love it. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the final five. If you haven't yet been to one of my events, I encourage you to plan to be at the Raising Money Summit on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Here's a couple clips of people that are going to be there speaking. I know this event's going to be valuable to you. And I hope you go to RaisingMoneySummit.com and get your tickets today and click in podcast. That's going to give you a discount to this event. And the entire month of August, that'll be 20% off. 20% off your tickets. There's three levels of tickets. I encourage you to hear these two people out. And then at the end make sure you go to Raising Money Summit, sign up today, and I will see you on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. I'm Kathy Fedke, co-CEO of Real Wealth Network and host of The Real Wealth Show, which I started uh, 17 years ago, and it was always about interviewing the experts to find out what they're doing and how they're doing it right, so you don't have to make mistakes, you can learn from others. And I'm so happy to see that Adam Adams is one of those quality people that that brings the best of the best together so that others can learn from each other and, and everybody do better. And that could never be more important than today when a lot of people are jumping in who don't know what they're doing and a lot of investor dollars are at risk. And that's, that's, very, that's very sad for everybody involved. So Adam Adams, thank you for all the great work you do. Don't miss this, don't miss any of his events, but the Raising Money one in particular is gonna be awesome. So see you there. Hey, this is Matt Terrio, CEO of Epic Real Estate, and I'm really looking forward to October. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while to come and show people my three secret questions of how I've been able to raise millions of dollars for my deals and how I've built a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio using very little to my own of my own money 
No banks involved, no credit score needed. I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to give it all to you. Hi, I'm Ellie Perlman, and I've noticed that many investors that are trying to raise capital don't know how to systemize the process. And I found a way to build a really, really great funnel that automates the process. So I'm able to add two to three and sometimes even five investors to my list every week. So this October in Denver, I'm going to be teaching you how to uh, to do that. And I'm going to give you the step-by-step blueprint of how to build a systemized and automate your funnel. I'm going to be talking at the Raising Money Summit with Adam Adams, and I cannot wait to see you there. Hey, everybody. This is Corey Peterson. You know, I'm known in my industry for being able to get a crap ton of referrals. I've been able to do this through a unique customized um, binder that we sent to each and every investor. Guys, I'm going to unlock this for you at this conference. I'm going to show you the step-by-steps of it. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't use this, you're not going to be successful. This tool will help you get a crap ton of referrals. And that will lead you to becoming very successful in the multifamily world. And we're back with Hunter Thompson. So excited. Hunter What's the most creative deal you've ever done? Yeah, no, I appreciate this question, but I've got to be transparent about this. Because of how we're positioned in the marketplace, the creativity of the deals, we mostly defer to our operating partners on structuring those deals. However, regarding this conversation that we've been having about self-storage, I'll think the most interesting value-add way or way to pick a value-add or identify a value-add, we were doing a property visit once and we saw that the property manager was renting out his scissors so that people could open up boxes. And this for me was like, oh my gosh, this guy's leaving so much money on the table. Now, granted, the scissors probably cost what? $10, right? It's basically inconsequential, but it's the implication there of what is at stake. They're clearly not running this place like a business. They're clearly thinking of it as investment. They probably owned it since 1982 and they've just been holding it. And so for me, that was kind of creative and hopefully that's an interesting answer to your question. It's like, you see that little thing and it's like, what else are they leaving on the table? And then once you get into the financials, you start to realize this is a really compelling investment thesis. Really cool. Really cool. Uh, So what's a book that you would recommend to the listener? So I will say one that doesn't get nearly enough attention is Double Double by Cameron Harold. Um, He is an excellent author. He was the COO of Got Junk. He took it from 15 employees to 3,000. Just a remarkable entrepreneur. Go to CameronHerald.com. He's also been a guest on our show a couple times. Just such a cool guy. Someone who really seems to understand the work-life balance. Double Double is a operating manual for how to double the size of your business in three years. And it is, man, it's a no-brainer. And you said Cameron Harold is the author? That's correct. Perfect. So that's in the show notes now or in the Facebook comments. So if you want to look for that, go ahead. I might have spelled Harold wrong, but who knows? All right. The next part that I wanted to ask you, just can you just show me, I know you got started with this in 2011 and it's just like you're crushing it, but I, I want you to paint the picture of what it looked like just five years ago. Man, it's funny when you say that. I'm sure if you ever say it to anybody that comes on your show, they get super embarrassed because any entrepreneur, when someone says you're crushing it, the first thing I want to say is like, oh no, you'll see me in six months though. Then I'll be good, right? But that's always how we feel. It's like you never get to that six months. It's like you're chasing the horizon. And so it's good to look back and really understand where you've come because if you don't do that, number one, you'll get burned out. But number two, even if you have a healthy relationship with burnout, some of your loved ones might not. So the thing that I think can impact me the worst is if my fiance has a bad day, right? She's feeling down in herself. Cause look, I'm basically saying to her, no one gets to talk about my fiance like that, especially not you. So just wanted to mention that. So I appreciate the question. So five years ago, I was absolutely hell bent on doing this for the rest of my life. I loved what I was doing, but I hadn't yet found the vehicle by which to accomplish those goals, right? I hadn't built that infrastructure in which to attract and nurture leads. And so I had had success in real estate and I'd helped friends and family invest and we had even invested millions dollars of dollars, but I didn't have hundreds of investors that I could reach out to. And the reason is I was focusing on going around hunting people, trying to convert them, have some pseudo religious experience where they would change their way of investing. And instead, I started building an infrastructure, a platform to attract those types of individuals and then really sway them into my line. But it wasn't just 
you know, that massive 180. It's just a matter of having those conversations in a scalable manner. So, you know, prior to starting the podcast, for example. I love, love, love that. Anyone listening, what Hunter just said is the secret sauce. It's a secret sauce. Everybody's calling investors. You got to invest with me. Hmm. What you should be doing is creating a platform where your investors can just find you. They're already looking for this stuff. Create the platform where they can find you. This is like the type of stuff that I teach specifically with my one-on-one students is like how to get that platform, how to get it so you don't have to sell. Everybody's like, Mm. all these objections, they have objections. And it's like, stop worrying about the objections. Create a platform, get in front of them, and the right people will be attracted to you. It's a complete different way of thinking, and you've nailed it. And what you just shared is the gold, the secret sauce that any listener, if they really want to be truly successful in what they're doing, they should be doing what you're talking about. Where will Can I say one thing? I know you'll be Please. sympathetic. Just one thing. Please. So my first capital raise, after we had established a track record, you know, I had a, a capital raise where I had 30 people to a luncheon. My goal is to raise a half a million dollars. I got a total of zero dollars raised because I was trying to do what most people are trying to do and tell people what are the magics of investing in real estate. And they go, I don't believe you because I've never considered this before. And I'm not going to convert me over a lunch. Um, we scratched and clawed our way to $340,000. Less than a month ago, I received a wire for $300,000 to an individual that I've never spoken to on the phone before because of how much they know about me because of our platform. That's what's possible. The difference between zero after all that work and just receiving an email saying the money's in the account. Pretty remarkable. Super glad you paused to share that detail. It, it really is truly remarkable. Um, Oh, so I was going to ask you the next part of this question is just really, can you tell me what it looks like five years from today? Do you have that vision of where you want it to be? Yeah. You know, again, speaking of remarkable, it's pretty amazing what you can accomplish if you have a set of incredibly dedicated investors that are willing to reinvest with you every single year. Right. And the numbers are staggering. So let's just put it like this. And I'd like to get to the thousand investors within that time period, well within that time period, I think it's accomplishable. But let's say you have 600 investors that are accredited and therefore have the ability to invest, let's say $75,000 a year, which I think is a reasonably conservative number. Um, That's $45 million worth of equity every year and gives you the ability to invest $150 million worth of properties. That is up there in terms of what's in the non-institutional world and the sector that you and I operate in. That's really, really high. And that's all it takes. 600 investors that are willing to do that every single year. So working towards that goal, right? We have 300 now, and I think that we'll work our way to 600 and work our way to 1,000 only if the investments perform. So you have to have your incentives aligned correctly so that your ethics don't be confused. But if you're able to accomplish it, that's pretty, pretty fantastic outcome. And that's, you know, that's the trajectory that we'd like to accomplish. Awesome. Now, I made a promise to anybody on the Facebook that we would answer their questions. Like another question came in, and I am actually very happy that it came in because here I am assuming that everybody knows what we mean by platform. Here I am just thinking like that's normal mm. verbiage for me. Um, so, Andrew, thank you for throwing this question out, and we will take uh, a pause from the final five so that we can dive into the details here. Uh, Andrew's asking, what is your platform? Please elaborate. Yeah, so I'm in the process of writing a book about this, which I know it's, you're super passionate about this as well. Generally, it's creating an infrastructure to nurture leads to your way of thinking to end up in investing in your products, right? So I'll give you an example. We have a lot of articles that we've written about interesting topics relating to passive investing, which asset classes are most compelling. Is the mobile home park business actually recessed and resistant? Just a variety of topics. You can find them on cashflowconnections.com. We also have an ebook on the self-storage business, which we'll probably link to in the show notes page. So we're starting to build that infrastructure. And then for me, something I love to do and I know that you love to do as well, is to have conversations with successful real estate entrepreneurs. And so that's kind of the next piece is the podcast. So you're getting you know, you get a video, the reading component, you're getting the audio component. And then we also have an annual conference, which is called the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference. And now we're getting the in-person situation where a lot of people, you can learn a lot, but in real estate, 
how much you know is not really what's important. It's who is your best friend, right? Who's your friend that knows the guy that has the property that finally needs to get sold. That's the way deals are done. And so we're creating that infrastructure, that platform, if you will, to help nurture those leads. And um, once you get it up and running, it, it is it's such a great way to spend your time. I haven't found a better way to spend energy and resources and time than dedicated to you know educating investors, which by the way, results in a highly intelligent investor base, which means that they're likely not going to invest in deals that aren't good, which means that your success as a real estate entrepreneur is going to be much more pronounced. I was muted. <laughs> awesome. Do you have a few minutes um, extra or do you need to hop off? Because we have more questions still coming. When it comes in. to questions, I will do this all day. I do have a two okay. o'clock at Pacific time, but other than that, we're fine. All right. Um, Andrew has another question. He wants you to specify um, you know, your role in the business. He's asking, are you the interface then between your investors and then the actual opportunity? Exactly. So we joint the way we structure it can vary can vary depending on the deal. But typically speaking, we create a programmatic joint ventureship with an operating partner, and we are kind of the capital arm of the transaction. So we have an operating partner that focuses on operating the business, and we invest significant capital. And we also handle things like deal structure and legal consulting and marketing consulting, et cetera. And so we interface directly with the investors so that the operating partner can focus on things like interfacing with the manager, making the decision of when to raise rents, and if so, how aggressively, things like that. So hopefully that clarifies the structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. The next question that I have is how, how do you give back, Hunter? Yeah. I mean, for me, I am so dedicated to entrepreneurship and that is something that I, I want everything, everything. I want everyone to be able to have at least an entrepreneur mindset, which will allow them just an incredible life. Because even if you have a W2 job that you love, having just a side hustle, even if it's not an income earning side hustle is just such a rewarding feeling. Like if I could teach everyone how to be passionate about a particular thing, build a website, drive traffic to the website, get people's email addresses, and then close deals. That's like all that it is to be in business these days. And it's not taught in schools. And so the way that I give back is, is through mentorship, et cetera. And, and we do give to charity, but I think that the time that I spent and the results have been so awesome to hear someone say, you know, either I got a job that I would never gotten without your program or we just launched our first round and I raised a million dollars. Like that is what makes me love working in this industry um, for a variety of reasons, but that's the way I do it through educating. And by the way, I was very fortunate in terms of who I met and when I met them and they passed that along to me basically for free. And so I tried to make an infrastructure, which that's super scalable to just make that happen more and more and more. Love it. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, the, the folks that are listening right now and they, they do want to connect with you, it, it seems like there's two really great places to go. They can either follow your podcast, which we mentioned at the beginning, it's Cashflow yeah. Connections podcast, or, or they can just go to cashflowconnections.com. The other way they might be able to reach out to you, in, I'm thinking it's just to go to asymcapital.com and they mm -hmm. might be able to find your email there or... Is there yeah, if you want, yeah, you could just shoot me an email, info at asimcapital.com. We'll shoot you a bunch of free goodies, eBooks, and some of my favorite podcast episodes, et cetera. And cashflowconnections.com is kind of our educational arm. That's where you find all those articles, all our podcasts, eBooks, et cetera. Hunter, I just want to say how grateful I am that you took the, the time and even spent extra time with us here today on the podcast, a lot more than we really allotted. And um, you've added a lot of value to me and to each and every listener and, and Facebook watcher. So thank you for being so willing to give uh, your time and uh, all of the details that you shared about the business, the business structure, the business model, how you make money, how people can invest passively. I really, really, really appreciate that. I'm going to let you go for now, but until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Hey, thanks again. What's up, podcast listeners? I hope you're getting a ton of value from the episodes that we keep dropping daily all month of August as we promote the Raising Money Summit. I bet you anything you've already gotten your tickets. I assume you're coming, and I cannot wait to see you there. I'm going to let you hear from a couple more of the speakers that are going to be on stage at this event 
right here, right now. Check them out, and I'll see you on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Hi, I'm Ellie Perlman, and I've noticed that most people, most investors, don't know how to create a systemized funnel and work really hard to raise capital. Now, real estate is, is a hard work. Nobody says otherwise. But I have found a way to build a, to build a really you know, robust and really um, easy system that generates hot leads straight to me. Investors are reaching out to me on a weekly and sometimes on a daily basis. So I'm able to add between three and five investors to my investor list every week. And that's with minimum effort. So on the summit, I'm going to teach you how to do that. I'm going to give you the blueprint and the step-by-step plan on how you can do the same. So you can generate hot leads of investors reaching out to you on a weekly basis with minimum effort. If you know how to do it right, it's a lot of fun. And it's not as hard as you think. Hi, I'm Gene Trowbridge, and I'm really excited about being at Adam Adams' uh, presentation on October 3rd through the 5th. I got to tell you something that's happening to me that I'm going to talk about when I'm at that presentation. I go to um, all sorts of events. I'm one of the preeminent uh, securities attorneys in the country, and people stop by my booth and they pick up a business card. Two days later, I get a solicitation from them to invest in their deal. That's totally illegal. I need to tell you about how you should not do that. My best legal advice to you is don't do that. You don't have a pre-existing relationship with me. You don't have a substantive relationship with me. I'm going to talk about all that. And it's not just me you're soliciting illegally. It's all the other people that you haven't built the right foundation with before you go ahead and ask them to invest. So be sure to be there early on the first day to hear me talk about this because I'm going to keep you out of trouble and then be there at the end of the last day where Jillian Sedoti, my partner, is going to give you a rock star performance that you cannot afford to miss. So I'll see you in Denver, October 3rd through the 5th. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Pili Yarusi from Yarusi Holdings. I am so honored to be speaking at the Raising Money Summit coming up in October. Um, At the summit, I'm going to talk to you about how focus gives you more success and how your passive investors will see that and trust you even more because of that, because you have the focus. I mean, all of us know that as investors, if we see that our fellow fellow investor is focused, is clued into exactly what they want and how they're going to get it, we see that and we are attracted to that. So, I mean, think think about that in the passive investor side. They know what they're looking for and they see it in you if they see the focus in you. And Finding this focus was really, really difficult. Jason and I, my husband and I, went from A to B, which was me getting my real estate license. We started flipping and wholesaling. And I found out that flipping and wholesaling, at least for us, was a job. We weren't investing our time wisely. But we learned how to do real estate. We learned more about the business doing that. We got into small multifamilies. We found a couple in in Indiana that gave us permission to look out of state, look further than than our hometown with within like that 30 minute circumference that we were driving to, to do our flips. We found that permission to look further. So from that, Jason saw the possibility of going bigger. Of course, at that point I was like, Oh no, I don't, I can't let me, let me just focus in on this. Let me, we'll do our flipping and wholesaling and we'll do our small multifamily, but doing a hundred units, 500 units at a time. Wait, what? That's actually possible. And we found out that it was. So a year, two years later, we're trying to do everything at once. And we just, we just figured out that we can't. And we came to the decision that we're not going to do that anymore. We started dismantling our other businesses and we focused on multifamily and we are on the way up because of it. 
And I want to show you exactly how we did it and our story that drove us to the point that we are at now where we are all in on multifamily, on large multifamily, and finding and offering people the opportunity to join us. So again, this is Pili Yarusi for the Raising Money Summit. So honored to be going there and so honored to meet you. Bye now. Hi, I'm Kathy Fedke, co-CEO of Real Wealth Network, and we started raising money for syndications back in 2009, so I guess you could say it's my 10-year anniversary. Uh, We did some things very wrong in the beginning, and we are doing them very right today. Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of new syndicators make the mistakes that I made in the beginning and, and mistakes that are way worse than I could ever have dreamed up. So I'm excited, so excited that this event is happening Um, that I can come and teach people how to really build a business that will be there for the long term um, and that investors will just just be waiting in great anticipation for your next deal and have money set aside that they can't wait to send you.